You may be seated. Our sermon text today is Galatians 2, verses 11 to 21, and we're, if we're going to get through this whole passage today, we're going to need to get right to work. So would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, help us to see your truth in your word. May your spirit move in our hearts that we might not just know in our minds what you would have us know, but that we might truly experience it in the depth of our being and that we might be able to, from this place, go forth living out your truth through our lives, which we give to you, for you have given your life for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our text, Galatians 2, verses 11 to 21. Hear now the holy word of God. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... We, too, were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. This passage that we're looking at today is an important passage in the book of Galatians. It's important, first off, because it gives us an unambiguously clear proclamation of the truth of the gospel. It's also important because it gives us some, some examples of application of the gospel to our lives. And so if we were to break down kind of a, uh, an outline of the sermon, I'd say we're going to look at first the message of the gospel. And then after having looked at the message of the gospel, 
we will look at both actions that are out of step with the gospel and actions that are in step with the gospel. Now, it's always helpful to have your Bibles open in front of you as we're working through a, a passage. It's especially true today because we're going to be kind of jumping around throughout the passage, not, not necessarily going start to end. And so, so we're actually beginning in, in this passage, which runs from, from verse 11 to 21. We're actually going to begin in verse 15. Because in verse 15, we see Paul write, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. He's talking to Peter at this point, and he says to them that we are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. He's kind of borrowing the language of, of Pharisees here, Pharisaical language. You know, this idea of Gentile sinners as opposed to the good Jews, right? That's what the Pharisaical idea was that the Gentiles, they were bad, but we as the Jews, as those who are following the law of God, are, are thereby making ourselves righteous in that way. We can kind of do that too, can't we, as Christians sometimes. We think that, you know, there are all those sinners out in the world, but we come here to the church and we're those, those good Christian people. And we make ourselves right before God by following all the rules, by doing all the right things, but but we can see very quickly that when Paul uses this language, he's doing it in such a way that's kind of a, a, a sarcastic tone. Because what's the very next thing he says here? He says, yet we know, do we not? That a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. We begin right there. That's just kind of the gospel itself, isn't it? That, that we're not justified by works of the law. There are no works of the law. There's no, nothing that we can do that will bring us justification, that will bring us forgiveness of the guilt of our sin, that will, will remove from us the shame of our sin, that will cleanse us from the filth of our sin, that will execute a payment of the penalty for our sin. There, there is nothing we can do that will accomplish this. And yet, what Christ has done for us in dying on the cross has done these very things. Christ's death on Calvary's cross accomplished the forgiveness of our guilt, the removal of our shame, the cleansing of from our filth, the payment of penalty for our sin. He, he didn't just attempt to do it. He didn't just take steps toward doing it. He didn't just make it possible. He accomplished all of these things. And we had nothing to it through our works. Right? It's not that Jesus got us 99% of the way there. And now we just need to take that last step. No, he accomplished it perfectly and completely on that day. And so in verse 16, we see that it is not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also, Paul says to Peter, we also, you know, Jews, those who had depended upon their works, we also have believed in Christ Jesus. 
He says, says we, we've turned from this idea that our works somehow make us righteous before God. We've, we've rejected that. We've, we've learned that the law can never make us right with God. We need to trust in Christ Jesus. We need to depend on Christ Jesus. We, we believe in him. We have faith in him. We rest in him alone in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul is very ambiguous here, right? He, he's not kind of wavering a little bit. By works of the law, no one will be justified. We are not the ones who accomplish it through our moral actions. So the question you might have as you think about that, it might be, well, well, does that mean then that, that, that we should just forsake morality? That we should forget about doing the right thing? After all, if it doesn't earn me anything before God, what's the point of doing it anyway? Right? We should just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, as the old saying went. Paul addresses that elsewhere in Romans 6. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You see, what he's saying here is that, that we... We're dead in our sin, and Christ gave us new life, pulling us out of our sin. How can we return to sin now? We live in response to what he has done for us. It, it kind of reverses the normal, normal rhythm of religion, the normal order of how, how religion often works. And the world's religions, almost exclusively, they say, they say that, that we have a problem, right? That, that, that God is good and we are bad, right? And so, so we need to bridge this gap. We need to get across this chasm. We need to somehow fix that relationship. And so, so what all the different religions of the world essentially do is they, they say, here are some ways you can fix it. Follow these rules, do these things, and that will fix that relationship. And, and the religions of the world say basically that, that you have to do these things in order to be right with God. And if you do these things, then God will love you. He'll like you. He'll accept you. You'll be right with God. Basically, the, the general order of religion is, I obey, therefore I'm right with God. Right? I followed the steps. I did the things. I accomplished all the tasks I had to accomplish. Therefore, things are good with me and God. But, but the gospel reverses that. The gospel says, you are good with God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, you obey. Right? Our obedience is a response to the gospel grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. We, we see a picture of this in, in John 8, where, where Jesus is teaching and, and some people bring this woman to Jesus and this woman, they say, has been caught in the act of adultery. They say, the law of Moses says we're supposed to stone her. She should die for this. What do you say, Mr. Teacher Man? And so Jesus responds, well, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. You know, people like to share that verse whenever we say somebody's wrong in doing something. But 
you know, what, what it's not saying is, it's not saying that, that we shouldn't call sin, sin. What it's saying is we, we have no right to execute the judgment of God against sinners. And we see that because what happened was, Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, and one by one, all the people wandered away, right? That's, that's what's true because of this. When he says, let, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, means none of those people were able to cast the first stone, but what else does it tell us? Let him who is without sin cast the first stone means that Jesus would have been perfectly within his right to cast the stone because he was without stone or without sin. He could have picked up a stone. He could have, he could have stoned her. He could have struck her dead right there and he would have been perfectly within his rights. It would not have been sin for him to do it because he is the God of all the universe who is holy in all his ways and every one of our sins, whether they be the woman caught in adultery or whatever sin you have committed this morning, you deserve the righteous judgment of God. I deserve the righteous judgment of God. We all deserve death. But that's not what Jesus does. He stood up and said to her, Woman, where, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. It's really an amazing thing that he says here. First of all, that he says, Neither do I condemn you, right? He would have been right to condemn her. But by his grace, he shows mercy and forgiveness to her and says, I will not condemn you. You are forgiven of your sins right here. But he doesn't end there. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. He beckons her. He calls her not only to experience the joy of forgiveness that is hers through the gospel but but to from that point forward go and sin no more live a holy life in response to the, the grace that he has shown you see how that order is reversed no longer is it no longer is it obey and be right with god but now it is be right with god and therefore obey it's the contrast between a a joyful obedience out of a full heart that has been made alive and and an anxious obedience out of an empty dead heart right you see how how the one if we're trying to if we're trying to make god pleased with us so that he won't strike us dead if that's the reason that we are trying to be obedient it's it's going to be filled with anxiety right because did i do enough have i have i behaved well enough have i have i gained enough points have i earned enough points have i achieved enough that god will be pleased with me i don't know maybe i think but but maybe not and i'm worried and and there's an anxiety about it that 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 will come from this dead empty heart that I have, but if instead it is out of a heart that knows that it has been given new life in Christ Jesus, that he loves me in spite of my sin, that he has forgiven me, you can see how I would want to respond in love at that point by following him. William Cooper, the hymnist and poet, does a wonderful job of capturing this when he writes, how long beneath the law I lay in bondage 
and distress. I toiled the precepts to obey, but toiled without success. For then all my servile works were done, a righteousness to raise. But now, freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose his ways to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. You see how it changes our, our whole perspective, how it, how it changes everything. Have you experienced the difference between these two perspectives? Have you experienced that change in your life, in your heart? Do you know the joy that is yours in Christ Jesus that prompts fruits of obedience? Do you seek to follow Jesus and to serve him and to honor him and to, to love him and to love your neighbor as yourself because he has already loved you? Or do you do it to try to twist his arm behind his back to make him love you? Because if you do it that way, realize the futility of that, that it will never be enough. But in Christ Jesus, his love is already yours if you but trust in him. You need to look at some of the actions that are out of step with the gospel. We see it in the actions of none other than the apostle Peter, that great pillar of the faith. Right? In verse 11, he's referred to by the name Cephas. That's just the Greek word for Peter. We don't know why exactly he came to Antioch. We don't know when exactly it was, but we can tell pretty much from the context what happened here. He says, before certain men came from James in verse 12, he was eating with the Gentiles. Now, when he talks about eating with the Gentiles, we can understand that this certainly included, but was not limited to, the Lord's Supper. That he would, he would gather with, with Gentiles and Jews alike who had trusted in the Lord. They would spend time with one another, partaking of the Lord's Supper, which was a regular practice that took place whenever they gathered together to worship the Lord, but also at other times likely. You know, they would have fellowship meals together or in smaller groups perhaps. You would gather together and show hospitality amongst one another. What a wonderful thing that is to do, to spend time with one another, in fellowship with one another, building those bonds after worship today. We'll spend time gathered around tables. It's a beautiful thing to do. I urge you all to stay after today. Spend time with others. Get to know people you don't know as well so that the bonds of fellowship might be strengthened, that we might know one another more, that we might, we might experience the joy of that fellowship with one another, that we might more and more become one body in Christ Jesus. That's what was happening in Antioch before these men came from James. But we see here that certain men came from James in verse 12. It's not necessarily meaning that they're representing James' viewpoint, but rather that they were coming from the church in Jerusalem is what it's saying. They were coming from the church in Jerusalem, which was, of course, almost exclusively Jewish. And we see that when they came, Peter drew back and separated himself fearing the circumcision party. Now, it may be that, that these men that came were part of the circumcision party, or perhaps Jesus or Peter just thought that, that, that these Jews would go back to Jerusalem and they would let others know and word would get back to the circumcision party. For whichever way it is, either way, 
Peter is driven not by his faith, but by his fear. He's driven by his fear. And to make it worse, that, that there's not just a, a sinful uh, mindset of fear there, but it's also hypocrisy that we see in him. And, and this isn't the first time this has happened with Peter, is it? Right? We think back to the night that Jesus was betrayed. What had he told Jesus when, when Jesus had said how he was going to be crucified that night and they were going to all fall away be, because of him. And Peter said, Jesus, even if they all fall away, I will not. And mere hours later, he had denied Christ three times to such a fearsome audience as a little servant girl. Fear and hypocrisy were no strangers to Peter. But now, come on, this is after that. Jesus has risen. You know, Peter's preached the great, great sermon at Pentecost in Act 2. He's, he's had visions from God. He's, he's leading. He's an apostle. He's all these things. And yet he falls back into the same patterns of sin. We need to be careful because the same thing can happen to us. Right? There, there may be patterns of sin, and I don't know what they were in your life, but there may be patterns of sin that were filling your life before you came to know the Lord. And then as you came to know the Lord, or perhaps as you grew in your walk with the Lord, you know, you kind of set those things aside. The Lord, the Lord took them away from you. He removed them from you by his power. You died to those sins. What wonderful freedom there was in that. And now you're walking with the Lord, and then one day you slip back into it. It can happen very easily if we're not on our guard because Satan is looking to devour us. That's what Peter says himself, right? Peter tells us that very thing. He tells us that we should be sober-minded and watchful for your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Unfortunately, Peter wasn't doing this and so Paul comes to him and he poses him face to face and 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 it's interesting he says I posed him face to face because he stood condemned we don't need a long investigation into this he says it was obvious on its face that he stood condemned other versions translate it because he was clearly in the wrong there was no doubt about it the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him we see in verse 13 so that even Barnabas was led astray in their hypocrisy Barnabas, the, the son of encouragement, this great partner in the faith, was actually pulled away from truth by Peter's hypocrisy. And we see here two interesting things, I think, in Peter. that One, he was, he was too concerned with what certain people thought. That is, the circumcision party. He was too concerned about them then he was not concerned enough about others, right? The people like Barnabas and the other Jews that were there that were following Jesus. He was too concerned about what the circumcision party was going to do. He wasn't concerned enough about the rest of those who were under his charge that he was supposed to be leading, that he should be a good example for. He, he wasn't concerned enough about them. He wasn't concerned enough to stand up in, in faith, strongly standing against those whom he feared, so that those who were following him might not follow him into sin. And that's why when Paul sees him, he, he said, verse 14 says, before them all, right? He doesn't go to Peter just privately and say, hey, Pete, 
you know, you're kind of messing up here. You know, maybe you should kind of switch that up. No, he comes before them all because the sin that Peter has committed has been a bold public sin. It has led others astray. And it's not just Peter that needs to know he is wrong. It is all the people that need to know, not so much that Peter is wrong, but that what Peter is doing is wrong and they ought not to follow him into that sin. And so he comes before him publicly and chastises him for it saying that the conduct he sees here is not in step with the truth of the gospel. And so what does he do at that point? But in verse 15 and 16, as we've already seen, he reminds him of the gospel. Right? He doesn't come to him and say, Peter, at this point, you need to change your morals. Right? At this point, Peter, you need to do more good works. No. He goes back to the gospel. He goes back to the gospel, he reminds him of the gospel, and he tells him what he needs to do. He needs to trust in the gospel when, when he doesn't feel like it, when he, he, he's, he's scared, when he's fearful, he needs to rest in the truth of the gospel. Right, this week, as I've thought about this, it was Reformation Sunday last Sunday, this week we saw Reformation Day, and, and I thought of how Luther acted, coming before the Diet of Worms in 1521, you know, some three and a half years after he'd posted the 95 Theses. He's, he's told by emissaries of the Holy Roman Empire that he has to recant his teachings. Otherwise, he's going to face penalty up to and including death. What was it he said to them? Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. You see, Luther at that point stood convicted by his conscience, trusting in the disclosure of the word of God. Peter did the exact opposite, right? He went against his conscience, what he knew to be the right way. We saw from our reading earlier in Acts 11, he knew that he should not separate from the Gentiles, but rather should fellowship with them. So it was against conscience and it was against the clear instruction of Scripture. He was out of step with the gospel. Now real quick as we close, consider the opposite, Paul being in step with the gospel. He demonstrates here that, that clearly Peter was wrong, that those sent from James were, were leading in the wrong direction. And, and so he opposed Peter and rebuked him and was right to do so. He, he, he saw that his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, that phrase. And, and perhaps that rings some bells in your ear if you look back earlier in chapter 2, back in verses 4 and 5, right? We saw how some false brothers were secretly brought in. They slipped in to spy out the freedom that, that they had in Christ Jesus. And in verse 5 we read, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Right? 
Paul says, stands in contrast to Peter. Peter who was, who was, who was wavering and who was even lead, leading, or led off in the wrong direction. Paul says, we did not yield even for a moment. We didn't budge. Not, we didn't budge because we're awesome. It's not, we didn't budge because we have freedom and nobody can mess with our freedom. No. We didn't budge for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Right? That same phrase, the truth of the gospel. That is what he is concerned with. And that's why he stood strong, not wavering. He didn't back off because the truth of the gospel was at stake. And so here he sees their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. He says we need to walk in a way that is fitting of those who follow this message of God's grace. Right? It's not do more good but remember the gospel. Remember the gospel and see its impact on your life. Remember Paul's words from Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Right? And as Philip Reichen put it, he said, unless we are willing to stand up for God at work on Monday, we're just pretending at church on Sunday. Right? Because it's one thing to say all these things, to say we believe all these things. But when the rubber hits the road, what is going to happen? And it's not just what we say, it's what we do. No doubt Peter, even as he was re re reversing his direction, even as backing away from the Gentiles, even as he was segregating himself off with the Jews, no doubt he was still proclaiming the truth of the gospel with his words, right? And yet, oftentimes our actions speak louder than words. It's not just what you say, it's what you do. And so the way we live out our lives can be even more powerful than the things we say. So our lives should reflect the truth of the gospel. We who have been shown grace should be those who show grace. We who have been forgiven should be those who forgive. We who have been greatly loved should be those who greatly love. We to whom much has been given should be those who give much. Paul writes, he died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ gave no less than his very life. So we are glad to live all our life for him. That is what it means to live in step with the gospel. Would you pray with me? Our Lord, we pray that you would just always remind us of the gospel. Take us back to the gospel time and time again. May you Beat it into our heads and stuff it into our hearts. 
that we might know it truly and deeply and intimately with all of our being. And that it might truly shape who we are and how we live to the glory of your holy name in which we now pray.